Welcome to the latest episode of Battleground. I'm David Pluff. And I'm Steve Schmidt. We don't have any guests today. It's just going to be Steve and I talking about how this election unfolded, questions that were answered by Biden's win, a lot of the questions that remain, and what a transition of power might look like when the loser of that election is in historical denial. First, we want to say that the election may be over, but we're not going to go anywhere. There's still a lot going on when it comes to political power struggles and divisions in the country, and most importantly, making progress on behalf of the American people. Right in front of us, we have two Georgia Senate races going into January runoff that will decide control of the United States Senate. And my personal favorite is we have to keep track of all the lowlifes crawling out of this White House on their bellies because some of these guys might face legal action for what they've done in Trump's name. And they should certainly face a lot of public shaming for the damage that they've done to this country. No one will be better at that public shaming than Steve Schmidt. I can't wait. So even though the fight for the soul of the nation is over, there's still a lot of battles that will be playing out across the country in Washington, D.C. and state capitals. We're going to do our best week by week to talk about the most urgent issues and try and keep you informed while also keeping you sane. But enough about the future of this podcast, Steve. Let's get right into it. One of the things, David, that I found like most amazing, and it's just such a perfect end, is they announce that there will be a Rudy Giuliani and Corey Lewandowski news conference at the Four Seasons in Philadelphia. And I lived in Philly right after college. You know, we both went to the University of Delaware. So, you you know, you know exactly where that Four Seasons is. And so then they need to put out after the Four Seasons announces, right, that in fact, they're not at the hotel, right? It's Four Seasons Landscaping. And so, so they go to set up the podium at the Four Seasons Landscaping, which is next door to a dildo shop on one side and a crematoria on the other. (laughs) <laughs> and that is where Rudy Giuliani and Corey Lewandowski hold forth lying to the American people about the stolen election. I mean, you just you literally you can't make it up. It's like it's even too much for an episode of Veep. It's just it's amazing. And what a journey Rudy Giuliani's been on from being America's mayor after 9-11 to being just a global joke. And he'll never repair that image, right? This is who he is now. No, no, no. I mean, you know, at first, like you're kind of sitting there, it's like, you know, should anybody say anything about the dildo shop right over (laughs) over his right shoulder? But maybe they did. And they were like, this is the perfect background for him. You know, like at one point it would have been like a more magisterial frame, like the Statue of Liberty or something in the background. But, you know, he's going out. It's perfect. I think it's probably the worst advance we've ever seen. <laughs> I guess you could still call it a presidential campaign, but it was, uh, yeah, it was such a fitting way for this whole travesty to come to an end. If you think about like the Borat movie, when they come in and Rudy's people sweep the room and then, you know, the guy who set this shot up, they should get some new people, you know, in charge well, of his stuff. Plenty of people looking for work. If you worked in the Trump White House at a high level, like you, that is a job opening, like Rudy's advanced team. Like that's something <laughs> that you are qualified it, to do. And it may be the best job you can get. Yeah. It's like, I mean, because <laughs> the Breitbart Daily Caller lifeboat isn't as big as one would imagine, <laughs> I guess. It's nice to think about. Stephen Miller, Rudy Giuliani advanced person. A lot of these guys are going to be living in a treehouse somewhere in a reality show in the next couple of years, right? It'll be the despots of the Trump regime. Yeah, on Alex Jones's YouTube channel. Yeah. You know, maybe like a version of like a naked and afraid. (laughs) (laughs) 
I have thought about this moment for four years, probably 50 times a day, what it would be like if we beat Donald Trump. And so for me yesterday, we're talking on Sunday, but when the race was called, most importantly, when you saw Kamala Harris and Joe Biden come out as our vice president and president-elect, I don't know, man, I thought it was going to be a great moment, but it, for me, far surpassed that. It was emotional. It was exhilarating. I think for me, you realized how much you were carrying on your back, just the weight of Trump all these years. So we can talk about the race and what happened, but I'd just love to know, you've obviously been on a pretty incredible journey here the last four years. What yesterday meant to you? Well, it's, um, you know, it's over. <laughs> yeah. The worst president this country has ever had, bar none, the most corrupt man, the most disgraceful family, somebody whose idiocy and insanity was lethal for hundreds of thousands of people, and he's been turned out of power. The other thing that is just this week in reflecting is I really like Kamala Harris, right? I, I just think she has an infectious personality. Right. Just like good, smiling, happy. But both of them, Biden and Harris, they just isn't it something to see a political leader just smile again? Yeah, it's amazing, actually. The joy of serving, the joy of people just to be a human being, both of them. The words to me were good last night, but it was just that sense of joy and optimism and inclusion that you could just see from their body language. You know, and I think that that's going to be such a balm to the spirit of the country. And for me, this week was seeing that, seeing that decency, right, is back, and couldn't be more overjoyed about that. I agree. Listen, it was joyful last night. I know Joe Biden very well. You got to know him well on the other side of the fence. You studied everything about his life. This is just one of the best human beings on the planet, not just in politics. And, you know, that's going to matter. It's just going to matter in ways big and small. And you saw with Kamala Harris, she is such a joyful person who's been in politics the last time, but I think has never lost that touch. I was talking to uh, Joe Scarborough for a couple minutes yesterday, and um, Joe said something, you know, to me that really just been on my mind ever since. And he said, 20 years from now, it will be hard to explain to people, I think, how close we came to losing this country. But when you look at all of these senators who won't concede to reality that Joe Biden is the president-elect of the United States, when you see the allegations that are just baseless of voter fraud and all this stuff being made by the new Gingriches of the world. We have to be honest about 70 million people voting for Trump and what that means and how we cool the tensions and the passions. I mean, I felt relieved, but I also feel there's a lot of work to do. These people are not disappearing, and it's going to be a fight that defines the country for the balance of our lifetimes. I think that is what is sobering, which is as great as it feels. And it is, for me, was just an extraordinary day yesterday. And today, honestly, for me, Sunday morning is the first time I felt normal in like four years with the recognition that it's going to be over, but that the fight to come is harder. Any thoughts on between now and Inauguration Day? And listen, I, my view is it's horrific 
and historically damaging what Trump is doing, not acknowledging the results of election. But, you know, he may not move on, but the world's moving on. Right. And, and I think he becomes increasingly irrelevant. Now, the fact that some high percentage of his voters think that Biden is an illegitimate president is not great, but we probably expected that anyway. So, you know, if you think about between now and Inauguration Day, what's the best thing that the Biden-Harris team and ticket can do to set themselves up for success? So none of the norms are going to play out, right, you know, of a normal transition here, which is unfortunate. But, you know, look, this is a hour of great crisis in this country. I, I mean, I think that president-elect just needs to keep talking to the country in the measured, calm way that we've seen him do all week. I think every time he does it, it's for the good. I think that we're going to see competent people nominated or designated for the cabinet. There's so much work to be done. And um, getting a handle on this pandemic is obviously at the top of the list. And Donald Trump's going to do everything he can to make this period as chaotic as possible. I think like one thing we should do, we should think about doing is like we should set up some type of betting thing, right, on like the number of pardons, who's going to get pardoned, <laughs> right, what day they're going to get pardoned, what order of it. Like we could become gazillionaires. Right? <laughs> you know? It's a brilliant idea. Yeah. Rogues gallery of names there on, on the betting, betting slip. It's going to be a chaotic 70 something days and then it will end. And then it will end. Yeah. I mean, and of course, you know, from a leadership standpoint. Trump's completely checked out, right? So Biden could enter the White House with cases so much higher than we saw back in the spring. To me, the most important work here is probably going to be stuff we don't necessarily see. You know, figuring out like what are we going to do that's currently not being done as quickly as we can to get this pandemic on a better trajectory. And I think we should give Biden and Harris some space here to understand that even if they're not winning the news cycle every day in this post, you know, election period, who gives a shit really? <laughs> like at the end of the day, like making sure you're hiring the right people, you have the right plan and, and you really come out of the gate strong on that with just great force, right? Because the pandemic's winning right now and we got to find a way to change that dynamic. You know, all of these people, the Steve Bannons, the Stephen Millers, all these fringe weirdos and nuts, and they are weirdos and nuts. They'll never be back in political power in a White House again. And that's the first step to getting this under control. You hope now that, you know, the president-elect, vice president-elect will be out there and, you know, you'll have sane people communicating to Americans about the deadliness of this. Clearly, one thing we have to do a lot better job of a country is, you know, to maintain social distancing, to maintain mask wearing, to take it seriously. That only works if most of us do it. And one of the problems has been Trump's message to his base has been, don't really worry about it. It's overblown. We see now cases skyrocketing in, in, in red areas of the country. It's off the charts. I mean, do you think that we can get some of those people who so far haven't taken it seriously to take a little bit more seriously? Probably not politically, mm -hmm. but I suspect they'll start taking it more seriously when someone they love dies. Right. And we're going to get to the number in this country where most of us know somebody who's died of it. And, um, and that's just tragic. It didn't have to be, but I, I think the genie's out of that bottle. We're going to step away to pay some bills and then we'll be right back. Welcome back. 
for a post-election debrief. There is one thing I do want to talk about on this. I personally want to know every detail about who was involved, who did what, when they did it around the child separation policy, the caging of the children and the orphaning of 565 little children. And I want accountability for that. Yep. I want to know every aspect of it, every detail about it. And the people who executed that should live in shame for the rest of their lives. Right. And you know what's going to happen then, you know, maybe they individually won't, but the Peggy Noonans of the world and the Megyn Kellys of the world will say, you just need to leave it all aside. And you won. And basically any kind of, you know, investigation or inquiry into anything Trump did is going to set the country back. But I agree with you. Like, it would be malpractice and really not living up to your oath of office if there is not serious, serious inquiry that gets to the bottom of this, that names names and brings one of the, the worst moments in American history fully to light. I saw you say something on TV the other day, and I have said the same quote on TV. I said on more than one occasion, I'm not a lawyer, but I've played <laughs> one on TV sometimes. Yeah. And I saw you say that. Um, I have a question which I don't know the answer to. Now, we both worked in the White House. The White House I worked in, like Hatch Act violation, you would have been fired for. That would have happened in the the Obama White House as well. Is there criminal penalties attached to that? Is it possible that a prosecutor will look at that, look backwards and say, you know, these people, Kellyanne Conway did this 15 times, Ivanka Trump did this? I think so. Yeah, Steve, I think there needs to be, there will be. So there's the individual actions you just raised. Also, we see from election night to the convention to so many of their advertisements, they were, in my mind, illegally done on government grounds. Did the campaign reimburse properly? I guarantee you we're going to find out they didn't. So that might be the most serious thing of all, which is, one, the property shouldn't have been used. These assets should not have been used. Okay, so that'll be looked at. But but let's even if they so they were used. Were they properly compensated? And you know the answer to that. It's all a big grift. I mean, even the money he's raising for his legal defense fund, did you see this in the fine print? It's like half of this is going to be used to pay off Trump campaign debts. It's unbelievable. You know, Brad Parscale just signed a million dollar book deal and we'll see all that stuff from these people. But, you know, the, the architects of this should not escape accountability. That's a different thing than than healing the country and moving forward. Both things can happen. Right. I agree with that. That's going to be a tough line to walk, but it's one you have to walk because, you know, to, to not have some accountability around some of these decisions, whether it's the child separation policy, Hatch Act, we're going to find out a lot more about, I think, how the pandemic was mismanaged and we already do. This is essential. And to say that, you know, we're not going to do anything here. We, we don't want to turn over any rock because it's going to upset Trump voters and Republicans in the Senate. You just can't do that. I think you need to be careful about what you're doing, make sure it's properly prescribed. But this is foundational to, I think, the country making progress. And we're not going to have the healing we need if we don't have a full accounting in some of these areas of what happened. One, you learn from them. But two, We as a country, I think for the last four years, one of the messages was the law doesn't matter (laughs) and the law only applies to certain people. And we cannot allow that to stand. We're going to take a short break, but stick around for more post-election dissection. 
Welcome back to Battleground. If you had told anybody six months ago that Joe Biden's going to win the national popular vote by four or five points, get more votes than anybody in history, win the blue wall states back and win Arizona and Georgia, you know, you would have been beyond excited, right? So I think we have to understand, you know, we still have a closely divided country. I'd rather be the Democratic Party than the Republican Party, given demographic uh, shifts. But this is going to be a battle to keep the House for the Democrats to win back the Senate. It's going to be awfully hard. It ain't just going to happen. And it's going to take everybody. It's going to take conservative 78-year-old voters in Georgia who've now decided the Republican Party's gone too far. It's going to take newly registered 18-year-olds to get active. It's going to really require everything, I think. One question I have for you, because we saw in 18 great Democratic turnout, and we had you know the best turnout in a century in an off-year election. Okay, Now, Republicans also turned out at pretty strong levels in red states. And then in 20, we see he was able to maintain his margins in, in rural areas, a little less in exurban, but drove increased turnout. To me, if I'm the Republican Party, and I, or I'm, I guess more importantly, I'm a candidate, question of how much of that can I maintain without Trump being the central figure? I think like as we study this, like in the months ahead, right, I, I think the power of alternate reality, you know, we kind of sit back and we laugh, right, about the, you know, socialism, deep state, Antifa. I think there's a lot of people in this country, you know, who believe all this stuff is real and and that it's happening. And I think that that's the, you know, that is the Trump turnout mix, right? It's like two scoops of racism, you know, three pounds of lies, incitements, nonsense, conspiracies all mixed together in this witch's brew. And I think that's the Republican turnout mix you know, 70 million votes, um, whatever it was that they were voting for, I'm not sure. I, I think I understand what they were voting against and being whipped up into a frenzy with the nonstop propaganda that you see playing out on Fox News and all these other places. But I don't know what you do with regard to a movement that's animated by and alternate reality, which a lot of this stuff is. But I think when you look ahead to, you know, 22 and you just look at, you know, midterm elections and you look at how the incumbent president's party's done. I mean, there's only been three elections in 120 years where incumbent president's party has picked up seats in a midterm. You know, the, the House majority is a slim margin now. The turnout mechanisms right on the on the right are not about anything to do with hope, right? Or making the country better. They're all right. about stopping bad things from happening, but those bad things are part of a fever dream. Yeah. Right? They're like not, grievance. and I don't, I, it's hard to get your head around it. Yeah. It's like grievance GOTV. No, listen, for the Democratic side of the question, I think um, we saw really in the entire Trump era, and it was manifested both in 18 and 20, you know, just tremendous amounts of activism. You had young people turning out in both elections at good rates, that has to continue. And so as much as we ask about what's it going to be on the Republican side without Trump from a turnout and activism standpoint, the same questions for the Democratic Party, right? And, and that to me is going to be so critical, which is um, in 22 and 24 in these Georgia runoffs, can you maintain close to that level of turnout and activism? Let's talk about Georgia. So I assume 
you and your colleagues at the Lincoln Project are figuring out how you can be helpful down there. So you've probably thought a lot more about it than I have. You know, my initial sense is obviously it's critically important because you win both. Democrats win back the Senate. You don't. Mitch McConnell's leader again. Uh, and my guess is he will do everything he can to undermine a Biden presidency in most places. But we know, one, the numbers are there. We just won Georgia. I mean, Biden's up 9,000 votes. I think that'll hold up in a recount. Stacey Abrams came close. So you know the numbers are there. I assume the Republican argument will be this is the only way to stop, you know, the radical left agenda, which was, of course, Trump's message to a large degree. And so the question is, you know, how effective will that be? Well, even some people who might have voted for Biden as a check on Trump won't go there. And obviously, there's an important Democratic message here. Now, this is Georgia. You know, it's not the Bronx. It's not, you know, Beverly Hills. So both of these Democratic Senate candidates have had more of a center left message. But I think you're going to have to figure out a way to both motivate the base. And and clearly, that's like the only way we're going to raise taxes on billionaires. The only way we'll do anything about climate change, the only way we'll expand health care. The only way we're going to expand voting rights is to win back the Senate. That's got to be core uh, to both Ossoff's and Warnock's message here over the next two months. But you also have to make sure um, when you look at the Georgia map and you see what happened in some of these suburbs, not just outside of Atlanta, all around the state, that needs to be replicated. So I just I'd be curious about your early thoughts. I mean, I remember back in shit, I don't know, it was 1990. There was a runoff with David Duke. That was pretty damn important since he was a KKK grand wizard. You wanted to keep him, you know, out of elective office. But this is, you know, the most important runoffs I can remember in my political lifetime. Oh, for sure. For sure. We have some work to do to try to get our heads around the race. My, my gut is that by January 5th, after Trump whining, complaining and crying, that it's going to depress the Republican turnout. Mm-hmm. And I, I think momentum is is likely to be on the side of the winners and, and the winners being in this case on the on the Democratic side and the parts of the coalition that, you know, delivered a victory for the state. I mean, you know, Georgia going for Biden and Harris is a is a big deal and it represents a, a demographic shift that we'll see play out over the next 10 years in a way that, you know, makes the Sun Belt more reliably democratic. I'll say this, Purdue is a crook, so is Loeffler. You know, this is a person, you know, who was out there short-selling stock mm-hmm. um, when she got the, got the pandemic briefings. Um, she's flirted with QAnon conspiracy theory. And I, I think these are both vulnerable Republican senators. And, you know, we'll, we'll get down there and, you know, work with some of our allies and you know, do everything we can to try to get a narrative around those two Republican candidates that's favorable for victory and also to, to be involved in the turnout operations. Right. You know, early January special election, you know, it comes down to in these special elections, who wants it the most in a lot of cases. And I hope Democrats want it. It's important. And I think that Mitch McConnell might be a, um, a person who can be injected into this race in a way that hurts those two Republican candidates. Yeah. How do you think that might happen? Well, I mean, you know, you had that big, great picture of Mitch McConnell standing in front of the Confederate flag, right? Right, right. I'm thinking that there could be like a lot of uses for that, right? You know, <laughs> you know yeah. as, we're, as we're trying to drive black turnout and, you know, this is the guy. I think anything can happen in a special election, right? That's yeah, that's the thing. And, 
Yeah, it's going to be intense. And people are also exhausted and tired. I, I just, I think the exhaustion is going to play into the Democrats' hands, though, because I, I think, I just think it's tough to get up for the game if you're on the Republican side after a defeat like this. And they're not going to let like the loss like clear out, right? There's just, by the time we get to January, I mean, just the monotony of the constant complaining and, and lying. I, you can't be full time in the complaining and, you know, crybaby game, right, of losing, you know, and at the same time, like back in the fight. Like, I, I just think Republicans are going to have a problem with that. Yeah, no, it'll be, you know, this is the only way to check the crazy liberals. And they stole the White House. Don't let them seal the Senate, et cetera. But I agree with you. To me, this should be much more. I mean, you want it to be about the candidates, but, you know, there's always kind of a proxy dynamic. This is much more about like Biden's agenda versus McConnell than Biden Trump, I think. And I think that can be helpful. The good news, though, is I listen. It is. I loved how you put it. It's who wants it the most. And, you know, there's no doubt activists on both sides want it. But, you know, we just won Georgia by 9000 votes with, I think, historic levels of activism. So can you repeat that in a special election and a runoff? I don't know. Uh, historically, that's tough. But the good news is the numbers are there. I mean, I've been part of uh, a lot of runoffs and specials, uh, as you have, where you're like, well, if this happens and that happens and this happens and this miracle happens, we can win. Like we just won Georgia, <laughs> you know, so we, you know, not with a lot of margin, but we know it's, it's doable. And so, um, everybody out there who, you know, just gave so much of your life to the, the effort to get rid of Trump and, and all these other races, you got to saddle up again. Andrew Yang just announced he and his wife are moving down to Georgia for the next two months. So uh, not everybody can do that, but that's the kind of activism that it's going to take. In a few weeks, we're going to do an episode dedicated to answering your questions about the election or anything politics or Delaware related. And, um, you know, David, I'm very excited about about the Delaware component of this because I don't think a lot of people across the country necessarily know what they're in store for as Delaware's culture really becomes a dominant force in the life of the nation from Scrapple to some of the great sandwiches that come out of the state, fashion, other trends. And we'll talk a lot about Delaware and the, and the growing influence it's going to have on the country in the years ahead. Delaware's on the map, baby. For the first time since 1776. It's very exciting. Absolutely. Use the hashtag Battleground and tweet your questions to at the recount on Twitter, and we'll do our best to answer as many as we can. Thanks so much for joining us on this episode of Battleground, the podcast from the recount and iHeartMedia. If you enjoyed this episode, give us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Aliyah Jackson and D. Scott Carroll engineered this podcast. Allie Rogers is our associate producer, and Christian Castro-Rossell is our executive producer. 